Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode seven of Project Restart. I'm so excited for this one. There is literally so much to talk about. We're, the sun's out. Uh, the summer games are here. We've still had the winter games that have just finished. There's just too much sport, even for me, to keep track of. But thankfully, I have got my right-hand woman, Nicola Kenton, with me to help dissect uh, some of the stories of the past couple of weeks. Nicola, thank you for joining me. How are you? Hi, Willie. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, how are you? Ah, exceedingly well, especially as I've got so much cricket to get stuck into. And as you know, uh, that makes me a happy individual. This podcast, though, we're going to focus on the end of the the domestic football season because um, we have just witnessed last night, as we're recording, the Championship Playoff Final, which concludes our domestic season. And tonight starts the, the European campaign. So uh, there's still going to be more football. But just before we, we talk about the rest of the sports, a little nod to our teams, our little Plymouth and our little Northampton getting up into League One. You guys buy an empty Wembley. Um, you know, how, how was it to see your team get promoted in that fashion? It was a bit strange, to be honest. I normally go to a game every year and I had, didn't actually manage to go to one this year. Um, which is disappointing, but I did obviously in cardboard cutout form manage to get to Wembley, although I was sitting next to a dog, so debatable. <laughs> we'll touch on with our with our two guests how we think lockdown impacted on on some teams from a football sense. But uh, one of the big things that's come out of the last couple of weeks is um, there's been some unfortunately some spikes locally in this country in terms of COVID. And it's forced the government to cancel these sporting trials um, that were taking place. Uh, we had one at the Oval, which looked fantastic. And it was, it was making my heart fill with joy. But unfortunately, you know, the government have, have, have decided to, to cancel these events. They, they were actually in the Crucible, weren't they? The Snooker World Championship started. And they were actually fans in the Crucible when this announcement was made by Boris Johnson. What, what's your thoughts on it, Nicola? Yeah, obviously the announcement was made just after midday on Friday. And that was kind of the first day that you'd seen fans anywhere. And as you said, it was the first day at the Crucible World Champ- Snooker World Championships. And so they'd managed to get fans in. And then as soon as the announcement happened, everyone was like, well, are the fans allowed to stay for the afternoon? There was a bit of confusion about what was going on. They did stay for the later sessions. They were allowed in. But then from... Saturday onwards no fans have been allowed so there were going to be resumptions you know trials across different sports as you said cricket they were going to do a bit more at Edgebaston um, in one of the Bob Willis trophy games and then also Glorious Goodwood we're going to have 5,000 fans there on the Saturday for the you know finale of that festival Um, but that wasn't allowed to happen so and they said that they had quite a big financial impact because they'd planned for it obviously they'd got these ticket holders in and now they weren't allowed in anymore and so they were saying that they'd lost quite a lot of money on that and obviously makes total sense to as Boris said put the the brake on and slow down a bit but I'm sure people would have preferred a little bit more notice than um, the 12 24 hours that happened I'm sure we will get fans back in but yeah, it's just going to take a little bit longer, a little bit more planning, maybe just working out how best to get those fans in. Obviously, a lot of it's been done with season ticket holders or those who already had tickets. It may be one of those things that once schools go back, we're able to see what's happening in terms of infection rate, what we're allowed to do again. Hopefully, there will be fans, but don't think it will happen to maybe next year which will be a little bit disappointing but we'll get there eventually. Really interesting to see um, an article that you sent me Nicola from one of the big football clubs um, Arsenal who have put on their official website that they're having to make 55 redundancies because of coronavirus. If a club like Arsenal with the multi-millions that they spend each year having to 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 make these drastic decisions what's going to happen to clubs that are in the lower tiers yeah as you said they just put out that announcement and they have players on hundreds of thousand pounds a week so 
is one of those where you're questioning the decision and whether the management has got their that right on um, how to you know help save employees' futures. It's not something you expected to see. And with many clubs lower down the league and cricket clubs being putting their players on furlough, putting other members of staff on furlough, obviously that's helped to save the industry to an extent to delay getting rid of people's jobs if you know they're just not as sustainable anymore but yeah if a club like that can't do it then what hope is there for those lower down the league although maybe those lower down the league know best better what to do with smaller finances and it's all about knowing you know how to plan within your own business and what you know revenue expected and yes they've had none of the revenue they expected but knowing how to mitigate that and still be able to you know put those community projects that they have into use get all the community work which is so important in this time especially in education and across different sectors that you know they're vital parts of what sports clubs across this country do and that is needed like you to get rid of that would be to get rid of the heart of some of those sports clubs let's move on to the main body of our podcast this week because as i say the 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 end of the domestic season after a marathon um, season it must be said i just really wanted to focus on the the pre and post lockdown for for project restart because there was an awful lot made of uh, what what form guides we were going to see because when we were looking at the Bundesliga there were a hell of a lot of away wins and there was there was this preconception that uh, home advantage would be totally ruled out and uh, there were certain teams that we thought because of the style of play that they um, that they posit that they were going to be be better without fans and certain um, heavy heavier pressing styles wouldn't wouldn't benefit but actually I think what we saw was 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 pretty consistent with with the first part of the season. Well, let's cover that in more depth because we've got two fantastic guests on the episode for today. And our first guest, uh, we'd delight to have him on, is uh, the former Brentford, former Millwall, former Bristol City, former AFC Wimbledon, former Plymouth Argyle centre back, Carly Osborne. He's, he's still very much in touch with all levels of the game so great to have his insight and then secondly we've, we've got a bit more of a round table discussion we wanted to really make this a, a, a really insightful podcast so we, we decided to go with two guests and we've got the football lab owner gab sutton who if you ask him about any season from any football league campaign he's probably got the answer so um great to have his particular knowledge to draw upon too and um it, it was great getting them down and, and having a chat about many different things. Uh, mostly we were focusing on uh, the Premier League and the Championship because, of course, those are the seasons that got back underway. Anything to say, Nicola, before, before we head into the, the interviews? Yeah, just a whole array of topics covered, really, under the guise of the Premier League Championship, touched on playoffs, touched on, you know, National League up until up into League Two. FA Cup final, a little bit of everything in there for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Something for every football fan to get their teeth into. That's what we want on Project Restart. We're trying to cover all bases here. You know, I like being a jack of all trades and a master of none. So why not uh, include that in my podcast career too? So uh, let's get on with it and um, let's hear from Football Lab owner Gab Sutton and former Brentford centre-half Carly Osborne. Great to have uh, two guests on the podcast for the first time uh, in Project Restart history. And, and what better guests to have on? We've got the former Brentford centre-back, Carly Osborne. Carly, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Kieran. How are you? Very well, thank you. And Gab, great to have you on as well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, um, what better way to start than with the Championship playoff final? It's freshest in our minds bit of a cagey game and I think that is because of the prize money that rests on these games 350 million quid for the winner 
Gab, I mean, do you think that's a result of the prize money that these games are often so cagey? Yeah, um, I think that uh, we see a lot of teams that play good football for much of the season maybe freeze up a little bit uh, in the playoff final due to what's at stake. And we've seen that uh, quite a bit in recent years, like in 2016, uh, Halligan Sheffield Wednesday, when it kind of took that one moment of magic from the Army the year after when um, Huddersfield played Reading and you see people like Aaron Moy who are lit up the division for much of that season and then didn't really influence the game in, in general play. So it's you generally see that um, really good players don't necessarily influence their finals in the way that they'd influence games for much of the season. And I think we saw a bit of that last night. Um, it was certainly a very tight game, not many chances. Defensive is generally on top. But having said that, I think Fulham were probably the better team. They probably deserve the win. And uh, what a fantastic race from an unlikely hero in, in Jay Bryan. What did you make of Fulham's performance, Carly? Yeah, Ful- you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, but Fulham probably were a better team for kind of majority of the game. You know, there was, there was a few things that kind of went against Brentford as well. A couple of decisions which could have gone either way, um, you know, with a few tackles and things like that. Um, it was a bittersweet moment for me because obviously I was fortunate enough to play with the likes of Joe Bryan and Bobby Reid. So to see Joe Bryan go and score and score two and, and kind of, you know, get his team to the premiership was obviously, you know, a fantastic kind of feeling in terms of, you know, I'm like over the moon for him and, and Bobby, of course. But then, you know, the pain came because the team he scored against is a team that, you know, I, I, I kind of call home and um, and I'm extremely close to. So it was it was tough. But Fulham kind of probably deserved it on the night. Brentford have had a fantastic season. It's about sort of preparing themselves now to go and, and complete the job next year. What do you make of Thomas Frank season and a half that he's had at Brentford? And, and, and where do you see the future, obviously, with the, the stadium move coming in the summer? I think Thomas Frank's been brilliant. You know, he got off to a, to a rocky start. Um, I think he only won one in his first 10 games. Um, but it showed a testament to the club. You know, they, they kept faith with him believed in in what he he was doing and how the team's team was growing and the performances they was putting in um, and they've kept faith and ultimately he's gone and got them to the playoff final and in fairness it close enough nearly to get all Mac so you know I think I think he'll be hurting I know that I know the team will be hurting and the boys will be hurting hopefully they can keep the you know the key nucleus of their of their squad there's going to be a lot of people looking at Brentford players now from the division above anyway um you know but hopefully they'll be able to keep those. And then I think next season they'll really kind of push on. Brentford's dismal record in the playoff continued last night. Uh, yeah. Nine playoff contested, zero promotions. Have you played in any of them? No, I haven't played in it, so I can't be blamed for any. <laughs> I like to think I'd make a difference if, if I played. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Going up for a corner kick or something. Does that, you know, weigh heavily on a club, their playoff record so bad? I'm not sure. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure how many players may have necessarily even have known that information, you know, unless the clubs may be giving it to them. They may not have all known that. So, I mean, to some people it may have. If it was me, um, it would probably fire me on more because I'd want to be the person that changes it and makes a difference, especially as it's nine, you know, nine playoff finals, no win. Not one, not one. So, um, you know, I'd want to be the person or part of the team that changed that. But I, I, don't, I don't think it had a massive effect on, on kind of what the players did and, and how they felt, to be honest. Gab, Ollie Watkins, um, Saeed Brem, Rahman, Brian and Buemo. There's been a hell of a lot made of the BMW partnership this season and they have been fantastic. But uh, Carly rightly points out that, that they're going to have to hold off some serious interest from the Premier League. Could they, could they make it at Premier League level, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think certainly with Ollie Watkins and Saeed Benrahma, um, they're both Premier League player. I think you're looking at at least six Premier League clubs are going to be interested in, in Watkins just because he's he's very strong. He's adjusted incredibly well to that uh, central role when you consider that he was pretty much a wide forward earlier in his career. And obviously Benrahma, I think he's got the ability to play in Europe. Fantastic player, just so skillful, can go two ways. Uh, just sort of twinkles paid player, isn't he? And, and very few players who've got that ability to accelerate away from someone like he can have his level of quality. So I think him and Watkins definitely going to get Premier League interest. I'd expect them to leave. I would, in my instinct, tells me that Brian and Wayne are probably among the players who will get another season maybe at Redford. And over the first, past five weeks, obviously, we've had the three different EFL playoffs at Wembley um, with Northampton, Wickham and Fulham all being promoted respectively from their leagues. 
Um, no fans at Wembley was something that hasn't happened before. Uh, many clubs did the cardboard cutouts, tried to get atmosphere there themselves. Um, how much do you think that played an impact on the players to play such a big stadium, but with basically nobody there? Yeah, it would have it would have been tough. You know, Wembley Stadium, the place that every kid dreams of playing. You get there and then there's there's no kind of atmosphere and and fans. It would have been a strange place to play. Like even even being able to just kind of hear your voice echo around the stadium when you're playing. Like we like we've all taken part in kind of games behind closed doors, and it's not the same feeling or atmosphere. And I think for the team that takes the lead first, uh, I think it helps them a little bit more. You know, they don't have that reaction from the fans who are trying to get their team up for it and maybe encourage their team. And also, if things are going, you know, not going well, the, that team doesn't also have their own fans kind of getting on their back because they may be frustrated, even whatever it might be. So it would have been a strange thing for sure. Um, I, I personally haven't enjoyed football as much without the fans being there. It just doesn't feel the same game. And I'm sure, although a lot of players would have been glad to be back, um, that same sort of feeling before you get before a game and then obviously when you play the game, I think it wouldn't have been there. And I think that's been seen on, in some teams that kind of have dipped and lost form when they've come back after the, after the virus. Yeah, well, we're going to touch on that later, Carly, in a bit more detail as to why certain teams have been better since the lockdown and why other teams have, have lost form. But, Gab, I thought it was particularly interesting, the three EFL playoff final winners being Wickham, Northampton and Fulham, simply because I, I think... Um, in comparison to their opponents, they, they were the more robust team out of all um, of, of those matchups, and they all got promoted. Do you, do you think there's anything in that without the fans? The, the teams with a bit more fluidity and a bit more style and grace perhaps couldn't get on the ball as much, and actually a more direct style, more robust style, although Fulham play a lot of possession. You know, they've got the Harrison Reed in midfield, which Brentford do lack, and, and I thought it was interesting that Northampton and Wickham with their very direct styles, um, both both one out in the end in, in the League Two and League One playoffs. I, I think with um, with Northampton and Wickham, they played very direct styles, as you mentioned, with early balls into sort of the Bain Oliver and sort of playing there. And then Wickham, of course, they were very compact, weren't they? I think it was Oxford who had more of a possession in that League One playoff final. I think it's a slightly different case for League One and Two because they were um, all those teams hadn't played at all in like four months before the playoffs went ahead. Whereas I think it was slightly different in the championship because uh, we'd actually the season had actually concluded. And I wouldn't say there was a massive difference. If anything, I think Fulham, yes, they've got Harrison Reid, be quite a sort of a weedy lad, whereas Brentford um, have got someone in uh, Christine Norgard, he's pretty disciplined, and then a bit of physicality, I guess, in Josh De Silva. So I wouldn't say there's a massive clash between the two teams stylistically, it's just that Fulham executes their game plan better. Yeah, very true. The other two games that took place in an empty Wembley, uh, other than the EFL playoff finals and excluding the FA Cup semi-finals, were, were the National League playoff with, with Harrogate Town being promoted for the first time in their history. Uh, they will play in League Two next season. Uh, quick reaction from Gavin and Carly on that one. Quite an incredible story, considering they were playing Notts County, who have such history. Yeah, I'm delighted for Harrogate and uh, and everyone associated with them. And it's very interesting, actually, the Harrogate uh, manager, Simon Weaver. Uh, his dad, Irving Weaver, uh, is actually the chairman of the club. He took over as chairman when the club were having some financial troubles. And he's been a massive part of their rise um, up the league. But it's unfortunate for uh, Neil Ardley. I know that Carly played under him at AFC Wimbledon. And um, I think he's, you know, he's a good man. He worked, did very well in difficult circumstances last summer when there was a lot of uncertainty around the club. And I think to go from not sure whether we're going to have a club anymore to challenging for promotion and reaching player finally, I think is a really good achievement. And uh, I'm sure that's something that won't surprise Carla. Um, that, you know, the one progress not um, not counted made. Yeah, it's um, it's a fantastic story for for Harrogate, isn't it? You know, it will be interesting how that plays out. Because obviously they, they do plan a 3G pitch and stuff like that. So that would be a big part of their revenue um, in terms of what they bring into the club, the community they built around the club as well. Um, you know, so now they're going to have to kind of rip that up and go grass. Automatically, that puts them in a deficit almost because they're, you know, that's going to cost 
them to have to change the whole pitch as well as losing the revenue that that 3G pitch brings in. So that'll be interesting how that plays in for them for kind of the following season. But either way, it is a fantastic kind of achievement for the club. And it's great to see that, you know, those those are magical stories that we want to see and hear in football. For Notts County, to be fair to Nawadli, he is, he is a good man, a good manager. He's worked under some extremely kind of difficult conditions with, you know, the uncertainty around the club, the changes that they've had to deal with. Um, and, you know, he's, he's kept the boys kind of together and pushing for promotion. They, you know, they've, they've been unlucky to fall at the last hurdle, but he, you know, he's, I'm sure he will be ready to rebuild and, and go again and hopefully achieve it the second time of asking. And the other game, that, that, or the other final that took place at Wembley was, of course, the FA Cup final and um, Arsenal making history with their 14th success in that competition. Just wanted to pick out the importance of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to that side, obviously uh, getting the, the winner in, in both the semi-finals and the finals. Bit of a bit of a stat for you. You know I like a stat, guys. Um, Ober's two goals in the final. He has become only the fifth player to score two at Wembley in club football more than once. Uh, after Ian Wright, Brian Robson, Ian Rush and Eric Cantona. Pretty good company. How important do you think, Carly, it is for, for Arsenal to try and keep hold of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, obviously they've made Europe with that FA Cup final win as well. Do you think he'll stay? I'd like to think he'd stay. He's loved by the fans. He's obviously loved by the players as well. He's a massive part of the club. Um, a lot of respect is shown to him. So I, I would like to think he would stay. Arsenal are massively still in their re- rebuilding process, um, trying to kind of work out who fits where and stuff like that. But, you know, I trust in Arteta. I think he, he was a fantastic footballer who will have unbelievable knowledge, that's for sure. Um, and he has some great ideas, so I'm sure he'll be getting to work again on making sure the team fully understand it, you know, getting the right players in, and more importantly, sometimes getting getting the right players out as well. Um, that's just as important to balance the team out. But yeah, I mean, Obers definitely, you know, he's, he's a massive, massively important to, to Arsenal and, and their future and how they move forward. Another interesting subplot to that final was uh, Mikko Arteta and, and Frank Lampard making... Uh, you know, this major competition final in their first seasons um, at their respective clubs. Nicola, I think we want to touch on just the resurgence of managers, uh, English managers, um, to to have come through this season. I think it's been a big part of this season, especially, you know, looking at Sheffield United, for example. Yeah, especially with um, Chris Wilder, Sean Dyche putting, you know, Burnley and Sheffield United having top half finishes in the Premier League. And then obviously Frank in his first season in the Premier League, uh, with Chelsea leading them to the Champions League. And then uh, Scott Parker's obviously first full season, he's been promoted to the Premier League. So quite a lot of success among English managers this season. Um, Just thinking, Gabs, you know, what have you made of those four different people and their different approaches across the leagues that they've been in? Yeah, I think um, Scott Parker's um, done a good job, I think, on the whole. He's, um, it's not all been, always been plain sailing for him at uh, Fulham because they've had some very good individuals on paper and hasn't always clicked as a team. And I think since the restart, he's come up with a formula that's worked. When they've been without Mitrovic, they've arguably improved, which is really saying something. In, and I think Bobby Reid as a false nine has kind of suited what he's trying to do with kind of dropping in and linking play. And uh, and we've seen the rise of Harrison Reid. I think he's done well for creating that formula to go into the playoffs and ultimately succeed. So uh, impressed from that point of view, and you can see the emotion at, at the end of his interview. And uh, I think on the whole, um, Lampard's done a good job considering the loss of Eden Hazard at Chelsea. But... I think um, they've been good going forward, but maybe defensively, uh, they still need a bit of work. I'm surprised that's why they haven't strengthened more in that area. Just a stat about Frank Lampard and, and his respective seasons, first at Derby and, and then, of course, at Chelsea now. They have seen the exact same number of goals scored and conceded in the league. So when he was at Derby, his side scored 69 goals and conceded 54, and it's been exactly the same in his first season at Chelsea in the league, which is quite incredible, really. Carly, do you think Chelsea need work on, on their defensive side of the game if they're going to uh, succeed in, in, in all fronts next season? Yeah, I, I, I think they do need I think they do need some work. I think they need a, a kind of better understanding. Lampard naturally wants to play a bit more of a, an attacking brand of football. 
Um, you know, they're, they're bringing in, they've got some fantastic forward players when they, when they go forward, they play some lovely stuff. Me being a defender, I, I love a 1-0 clean sheet. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he will be kind of doing some work to making sure that, you know, they kind of play that attacking brand of football, but minimise the, you know, the goals going in at the other end as well. Interesting that Nicola uh, just mentioned Chris Wilder and, and Sean Dyche. I think it's particularly relevant to this conversation because what Burnley and Sheffield United have been excellent at this season is, is those shutouts. And Carly, it's been great to see those managers who have you know uh, been, been in management for quite a long time get the recognition that they deserve and, and competing with the likes of these top top managers. You know, the Premier League got the best managers in the world, and and, and they're cutting their teeth against these managers and, and succeeding. Yeah, they, I think, you know, for me, they're a real breath of fresh air. Um, they've had to do it the hard way as well and the longer way, you know, if you compare them to Lampard and Gerrard, um, they're not the, the same type of name when you talk about them. But what they have done is they've built um, teams and only built, built the clubs and taken them forward in such a massive way. And they kind of galvanised the whole areas that they're from and brought everyone together. Um, and I think that needs massive respect. What Chris Wilder's done at Sheffield United has been fantastic. I've enjoyed watching them. You know, they're, they're full-blooded. They, they work for each other. They want to go out and win and perform. Um, so they, they deserve massive credit for what they're doing. And it's fantastic for English managers to be kind of getting that recognition now because they deserve it. They've earned it. And last night, Scott Parker said after the victory, uh, what we're trying to build and what we're trying to ingrain in these players at this football club is some core foundations. Sometimes those core foundations get you far in life. You can have as much talent as you want, if you're not building your football club on concrete and you're building it on sand, then in the end, it will be a roller coaster ride. I hope we can grow gradually. It's going to be tough, but if we can't, we have core foundations that we will always fall back on. And as you said, that's kind of similar to what they've done at Sheffield United and Burnley. It's the culture of the club and everything around the club, as well as the play out on the field, that's helped them out. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100%. And I think sometimes... From the outside looking in at a club, um, you probably, you know, people will not always realise that. But those core foundations, if they're set right and you get the right group of players who believe in that, you can go and achieve and achieve something. And those managers have, have shown that and done that. Um, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with Scott Parker there. It makes a big difference. Sometimes there's a, an impetus on trying to, you know, get success as quick as possible. But sometimes you need to take the longer road to get it to make sure that success stays. Um, and I think they're trying to do that by by how they set things up. As Nicola rightly pointed out, there's been a shift towards building for the future, having a five-year plan in place. Look at look at what Brentford have done with that model. And it seems to me that it was interesting that Villa, uh, Sheffield United and Norwich decided to, to stick with their managers. Carly, do you think that's an important thing to have? For me, you have to keep faith with the managers is there for a period of time. It takes time for players to adjust. Sometimes when a new manager comes in, it starts well because, you know, um, players are fighting for their place. They want to impress the new manager. Um, and then once the manager kind of implements his ideas, if it doesn't fit for a player and doesn't quite work for a player, um, you know, they then, you know, don't, don't end up featuring. And the manager might not have what actually works for him within the building. So it takes time for a new manager to come in and really implement what they need in order for them to go forward. And frankly, I don't think enough managers get enough time. Let's move on now, guys, to a bit more of a comparison pre and post lockdown. Gab, um, I, I want to get you involved on this one to start with. We'll, we'll, we'll start with the championship, and um, because I, I suppose that season um, was was an incredible one. Just the way that some teams fought their way out of trouble, and um, the, the stat that I saw was the championship bottom five with just six games to go. We're not even talking about when, when the season was, was stopped. With six games to go, so the Championship bottom five were Huddersfield, Middlesbrough, Stoke, Barnsley and Luton, and none of them went down, um, which is quite incredible. Uh, what did you make of the, 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 the restart and, and who do you think we should shine a light on in terms of who did really well? I think it was really impressive how the teams that looked a little bit doomed um, before the restart had really picked up. So you're looking at uh, how Barnsley improved and, and probably for them it's something that they've threatened all season because actually their shot later and the volume of shots they've taken all season was pretty high. It's just they haven't quite got the results but now things have 
tweaked for them at both ends and they're getting a bit more uh, a bit more of the green, rubber than green, I suppose. But um, Luton as well, appointment to Nathan Jones, pretty massive for them. And they've pretty much been like a top half side in terms of form since the restart. So, yeah, really eye-catching from that point of view. And, and there's other teams like Charlton and Hull who... Uh, at other points of the season have been sort of flying high in the division. They've just been in free fall and, and obviously there was points that have been weekend. But yeah, it's been a really thrilling relegation battle. And, and I actually think the fact that the teams who have gone down have all been in really good form at times this season. Actually, the standards have been pretty high um, in the relegation battle and, and Barcelona and Luton have done really well to beat the drop. As you refer to there, Gab, I mean, Luton, if you look at the post-lockdown form guide, they would be in seventh. So, I mean, quite, quite an incredible run from Nathan Jones. Only one defeat in those nine games since lockdown. Carly, do you think there's anything to be said about the likes of, of Luton and, uh, and their improved form? They've gone away during lockdown and, and done some fitness regimes and, and worked on, on that side of it, or is it more a tactical tweak? What do you think improved form of the of the bottom teams was down to? I think I think yeah, I think they obviously they would have kept themselves fit and kept the squad together by trying to do stuff on Zoom, make sure everyone's involved in it and things like that. Um so you know people stay focused almost on what the end goal is. Talking about tactical stuff wouldn't have surprised me either. Uh, maybe going over over things how they want to be and, and almost doing classroom sessions I suppose in terms of how they want to be and how they want to be more solid when when they come back. Um, but I think, you know, Luton, for me, is probably one of the standout ones in terms of what they've managed to do. How they've managed to turn that around has been fantastic. And I know there was a manager change and stuff like that. And Nathan Jones has come in and, and clearly done unbelievable. But yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the difference. And I think, you know, I think Hull weren't on the best of form on their way kind of before um, lockdown started. You kind of saw them going that way. Charlton have had difficulties. Wigan, obviously, have had the deduction. So... That's also probably helped some of the, the teams that were in it as well. They've kind of had a bit of a stroke of luck on both sides, I suppose. A lot is being made of the decision to, to send Wigan down, but Sheffield Wednesday's put its deduction to carry over to, to next season. Obviously, the EFL has a lot of sorting out to do, Gab. We've discussed this, you know, off podcast about, you know, the EFL's role in next season. Um, in terms of keeping clubs alive because they're not going to have any match day revenue for as long as the government advise people to stay away. Well, how do you see next season going for clubs that are on the downslide, like a, like a Sheffield Wednesday, in financial trouble? And do you think the championship is going to be affected? Because a lot of teams that we've seen recently have, have gambled with, with their lives almost to, to get to the promised land of the Premier League. Do you, what do you see happening at that level and also at leagues one and two level where match day income is going to be drastically affected? Yeah, I, I think it's really worrying time because um, I know the EFL gets a lot of criticism and, and rightly so at times, but I think from a financial point of view, I don't think they have the wherewithal to help out clubs um, that are in trouble. And I think because the FA in 1992 relinquished any financial responsibility and gave it all to the Premier League, that means you've got a power vacuum. So although there's loads of, there's more money in English football than any other country in the world, there's also not the uh, the wherewithal to help out EFL and non-league clubs because distribution of, of the, um, the the wealth has actually gone off track. So I think there's huge problems there and, uh, and a lot of uncertainty really during this pandemic. And I do feel as a football fan, as um, someone who promotes lower league football, um, I'm a little bit worried at this point, I can't lie. And talking about changing in form um, in the Championship, obviously Forest and Bristol City were two teams who saw a decline in form um, after the restart and the resumption of football. Um, what do you make of those two teams and why was there such a change in their form? And obviously Bristol City have now changed managers as a result of that. I think Bristol City were probably on the slide a little bit from the end of January anyway because they sold uh, Josh Brownhill to Burnley and um, I think Lee Johnson had kind of changed formation and tactics and personnel quite a bit in that period and hadn't quite come up with uh, the right formula. Um, and I think with Nottingham Forest as well, they beat Leeds 2-0 in January and a lot of their fans were sort of thinking, right, we can push for the top two. But I think all season they've had issues 
maybe playing at home against the less sides for their expected to beat and, and they've dropped a lot of points in games where they would have hoped to have won and, and I actually think Forrest they've kind of they've got a really strong right side with um, Matthew Cash and, and Joe Lolly and Lewis Graben's technical finishing but as a, a side collectively I don't necessarily think they've been performing as a, as a top side all season so although on paper yes they've been in really poor form since the restart I think you could have seen signs of the drop-off uh, even before the lockdown. I find it interesting Carly that Gab makes those points that actually the, the signs were there before lockdown that these teams might suffer. Do you think uh, a lack of crowd has made a difference? Because uh, I suppose that is the big question that's always going to be hanging over this season. There's always going to be an asterisk next to any team's success or failure this season because of the break in play. And when you look at the Premier League as well, uh, the team that actually did the worst in terms of their difference in points per game from pre-lockdown to post-lockdown was the champions, Liverpool. Um, you know, and, and so much of Klopp's aura is about getting the fans on side and and you know the cop is the most iconic stand in world football you could argue so you know do you think there's anything in that that the fans weren't in and Liverpool's form dropped off um I think that I think potentially there could be um I don't think it would be a huge a huge part but I think it definitely could be you know if, if like I said before earlier and I touched on it earlier if you're going through kind of a tough time in a game sometimes the fans getting behind you and pushing you on is like that 12th man. And it does kind of almost give you a little bit of something to, to kind of drive you on. And if you don't have that, it then becomes obviously tougher to, to kind of, you know, put yourself in that place again. So I think it would have had some effect, but I, I don't think it would have had a, a huge, a huge effect. Well, I just asked Ali a question at this point. Uh, who was the best uh, sort of, you talk about fans who kind of drive you on as a player. Which sort of set of fans do you feel had the biggest impact on you as a player? For me personally, Brentford definitely would have been one. Um, Bristol City, when they when they got behind you, they were they were fantastic. Um, Millwall, I played for Millwall, but and played against Millwall. So they when they decided to get behind you, they were extremely good. But when they went against you as well, they it, it worked both ways. It was a tough place to go and play. Um, but yeah, for me personally, I'd probably say Bristol City and, and Brentford were the best crowds for me. Obviously, you didn't play much at Argyle, so... Um, I know, I was waiting for that. <laughs> I've, I've noted it down in my little notebook, so uh, yeah, I'll give you a <laughs> for that um, very soon. Um, the other teams in the Premier League, Carly, that, that didn't do so well um, post-lockdown were, were Crystal Palace and Leicester in comparison, and Sheffield United to a certain extent. If you look at it, Crystal Palace's difference in points per game was minus 0.9. Leicester's was minus 0.83. Sheffield United's was minus 0.44. Those are teams based on sort of, I suppose, defensive solidity, if you like. A lot of work rate, especially with Leicester. Why do you think their forms took a hit? Again, I think, I think it's kind of just possibly, you know, the, the break has caused some players maybe to, to not be as focused. They're a loss of focus on what kind of the goal is. Um, frustration, getting back up to speed again with, with the ball and things like that. And it takes some longer than others. Um, you know, when you have pre-season, you know when the season's starting. You have kind of six weeks or however long it might be to prepare for that. Whereas it was really kind of um, up in the air when the season was going to be starting, if it was going to be starting. And then it kind of you get a date, and there's only a, a couple of weeks before you're back into it. So things like that make a difference. I mean, you know, for me, Palace always worry me because I worry what's going to happen if Zaha does leave. I think it could it could work both ways for them because everything does kind of almost go through Zaha. That is the person they look to to kind of save them every time, and there's a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He's listen, he's a fantastic player um, and a real match winner without a doubt. He's been a fantastic servant to to Crystal Palace, but. Sometimes I think that's almost their downfall because if someone, you know, if a team does maybe get the better of, of Zaha or it's not his day, um, where do they almost look to next? So that will be interesting to see what happens with, with that next season. And for Leicester, I think, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where they've not come back in the best places they was before. Um, but I'm sure Brendan Rodgers will have them where he needs them by the time the season starts again. I think he's a, a brilliant manager. He's gone and proved that at loads of different clubs. So they'll be ready, I'm sure. At the opposite end of the form table, Manchester United were actually second in that 
difference in points per game post lockdown with a with a positive 0.78 difference. Um, Southampton were top of the the tree, by the way. What a job Ralph Hasenhutl did um, in the second half of the season. Um, and likewise, Chelsea um, had a pretty positive end of the season with with two points per game in that nine games to the end of the season, which secured them top four. Carly, as a centre-back, I, I, I want to ask you about Kepler and, and the, the struggles he's had this season. Lampard took the big decision to drop him in those last few games of the season, including the FA Cup final, which they went on to lose. Based on Opta's expected goals on target data, Kepler has conceded 11 Premier League goals more than the model would expect the average goalkeeper to concede, which is the worst figure in the division this season. What have you made of, of, of the criticism that has come Kepa's way this season? And, and do you think uh, it'll, it'll end up changing for him? Yeah, I mean, listen, I understand players need time to settle and things like that. But he's also, in his time, in his short time at Chelsea, he's done a few things that will raise, raise questions about him. You know, when he, when he decided he wasn't going to come off, um, things like that, they don't, they don't really help your cause. And then if you're not producing the saves that you need to, of course, people are going to kind of are going to wonder why. And listen, I'm not a keeper, so I understand that a keeper is a specialist position. But for me, if I haven't got full faith in the keeper behind me, then that makes everything I do a little bit more shaky. Um, so I, I can I can understand why questions are being asked. And and if if you know if him and, and Lampard aren't aren't seeing eye to eye um, for whatever reason, then sometimes it is best to just part ways and and move on. I saw an interesting statement online about how competitive the Premier League has been this season. Because you look at the, the stats in, in terms of the points collated, and Man United recorded the same number of points as last season, scored only one more goal, but finished three places higher. So in eighteen nineteen, they got exactly the same number of points, 66, scored 65 goals in comparison to 66 this season and finished sixth rather than third in 1819. Um, 66 points is the lowest points total to finish third in the Premier League since 1997-98. Did, did you find, Carly, did you find that the, the Premier League was competitive this season or, or not? I think it was. I think it was. I think what was, I think what was good was um, there seemed to be more, more teams causing problems for other teams. You know, usually for a lot of years it's kind of been top two, top three, top four that have kind of always been the same. But there felt like there was a couple more teams that shouldn't, well, shouldn't, when I say shouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be your normal teams to pick that were challenging for, for kind of um, Champions League and, and Europa League and things like that. So I thought, for me, I think that that was nice to see. And, um, you know, it's, it's exciting when more teams are involved in kind of the rat race towards the end of the season, without a doubt. It, you know, it gives you... It gives you more of an atmosphere and, and you know, it keeps, it keeps things exciting. It was great to see um, the top four race and the, the relegation race go down to the last day, that's for sure. Because as you say, Carla, normally it's sort of wrapped up, isn't it, uh, with a few games to go. Villa stayed up in the end um, with just 35 points. Only their Midlands neighbours, West Brom, in 2004-2005, uh, with 34 points, have ever needed fewer to stay up. Is that a case then of just the Premier League? It's just so much harder nowadays to, to pick up points. I suppose with um, the rise of Wolves and Leicester has made it more interesting because um, normally you would say there's, there used to be quite like a big four and now it's sort of recently expanded to a sort of a big six. And then I think you're looking at outside sort of teams like um, like Wolves have got some amazing players like Adama Traore and then uh, Leicester have got James Madison and uh, people like that. And even you're looking at a side like Everton who uh, didn't even manage to finish in the top half when they're normally uh, spending a lot of money and aspiring to Europe. So um, I think there's a lot of teams that have kind of come up in recent seasons and, and even Sheffield United, I suppose, have been fantastic, haven't they, as well? So, yeah, certainly yeah, a more challenging league. league. So... It's harder, perhaps, to be a sort of a poor to average side and still say it comfortably, like you might have seen a few list sides do uh, for a few seasons. It's got a little bit more complicated. There's no way we could do uh, a domestic season summary without a massive loving for Liverpool. 
Um, they've been just incredible for the, the last two seasons. Um, and, and to win the league at a canter as they did for their first ever Premier League title, it is just such a shame that it has come in the circumstances that they did. And Jordan Henderson had to lift that trophy in front of very, very few people. Just a word from each of you, really, on, on why you think Liverpool have been so successful and, and, and what led to them winning the league at such a, such a canter. I, I think it's, uh, it's culture at the club is, is massive. Uh, I mean, they're called the culture club, uh, several decades away, weren't they? Uh, but, um, yeah, I, th- I think sort of having that core of players, I mean, we all talk about uh, Salah and Mane and Firmino and how they sort of combine really well. But I think having that someone like uh, Jordan Henderson and the James Milner as well, uh, fantastic professionals, fantastic leaders, set the standards. And you think of Manchester United when they had uh, a dynasty, they had people like Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs who uh, had a similar sort of impact. And I feel like they've got the right balance there with uh, players who can create a lot and are fantastic going forward and very good in the press and, and all this, but they've also got players who are going to cover and, uh, and, and behave in a really sort of selfless way with kind of uh, the work they put in. And, and I'm really pleased to see Jordan Henson get player of the year. For me, Klopp's put together a squad um, who have really, really taken and believed in him and what he wanted for the club. They've got fantastic pros and fantastic professionals and and like Gab said, you know, Salah, Mane, Firmino, they get a lot of applaudits, but it's, it's kind of the stuff that goes on behind them as well, which allows them to do that. Van Dijk's been brilliant. Henderson's been fantastic as a leader. You know, he gets a, he gets a lot of criticism for not maybe looking the most, uh, the best footballer on the eye, but the work he puts in for the team and, and stuff like that is, is second to none. And I think even down to kind of, you know, the young players that they've got coming through, they all seem to be believing in the same thing. So it's right from top to bottom of the club, which is what you need. And I think they'll go from strength to strength. But it'll be interesting to see how the, you know, Man Cities and, and Man United's and Arsenal's and Chelsea's kind of will try and, and, and combat what Liverpool do in this, with this window. Yeah, it certainly will. Just to wrap up, this is the favourite stat um, that I've got since researching for this podcast. I couldn't believe it when- I saw this because I think a lot of people wanted Kevin De Bruyne to be uh, the player of the year. And actually, these stats prove, and I, I want to bring you in on this, Carly, as well, just how important a Jordan Henderson figure is um, in terms of Liverpool's success. So since the start of 2018-19, and Liverpool have picked up an inordinate amount of points in those two seasons... Uh, Liverpool's Premier League win rate when Henderson plays is 85%. 53 wins out of 62. When he doesn't play, it drops to 64%, where Liverpool have won nine of their 14 games. And that can be extended back to, it's not just been the last two years Henderson's been integral. You can extend it back to Jurgen Klopp's time in charge. So during Klopp's reign, Henderson's win rate when he plays, or sorry, Liverpool's win rate when Henderson plays is 69%. So 88 out of 128. But it reduces to just 56% without him. 30 out of 54. Now, I, I've obviously never played at the standard you have, Carly, but how important is someone like John Henderson to a team? Because Kevin De Bruyne can get all the assists in the world and he, he is... He just looks like the best footballer in the Premier League. But why is Henderson so, so important? Henderson's massively important. And like, it's, it's that unnoticed work that he does tirelessly in you know, the, the running and the energy that he does for the team, going in people's positions to cover, but then also you know, taking the game by the scruff of the neck and understanding that you know, the team need him. And, and he's happy to do that horrible side of the game for the team, as well as being a leader and driving on people and organising the team and things like that. So it just, the stats there go to show how, how huge Henderson is to Liverpool. And, you know, if you go back to the era of Man United when they was fantastic, they've always had a, had a similar kind of leader. And, and the same with Arsenal and, and loads of other teams that have had it. You know, Patrick Vieira, we talk about, they've had those people that do the, the not-so-nice-looking side of the game. But is a real key feature and factor to, to success. And um, the stats show that that's why Henderson it deserves to be player of the year. All right. I, th- I think we're done. Uh, I, I've, I've covered all that I need to in this marathon 
domestic season. Do you want to have a guess, guys? I don't know whether you know this. How many days did that domestic season take? I'm going to say 296. Okay, 296. Any advance, Gab, on 296 days? When we, I suppose the EFL started on the 2nd of August, didn't it? It's good. So, and I would say, and, it, and what when did it finish? It was um, the 4th of August. So, yeah, I would say 367 days. Of course, it was a year, Gab. So, um, 369 days. So, uh, it must have started of August but yeah seriously top top work there from Gab showing showing how knowledgeable he is yeah showing the maths I know showing off will he there <laughs> but um you know we've got through it and um just a word from both of you finally on what you'll take out of this season you know having this lockdown period what what is it from this season that you will take from it I would probably say Rita Mondra's story is a real inspiration to me because um they only had um a handful of players that in pre-season check training in July uh, and then all of a sudden just went on this amazing winning run at the start of the season and, and went on to win promotion with you know possibly one of the smallest budgets in the divisions that was just an extraordinary story of what can be achieved through togetherness and, and spirit and uh, an excellent management from Gareth Ainsworth so that's one of the stories that I'm really going to remember. The, the Wickham story is fantastic they've, they've kind of achieved something similar to kind of Liverpool's uh, set up in terms of how they uh, how they utilise everybody within the team and the squad and get everyone working on, for a common goal. So for me, that's definitely one of them. And I suppose the other is how important fans are to the game of football um, because it just hasn't been the same. So I look forward to watching the game again and, and going to a game myself when the fans are back. And I'm sure they'll be back in full force because um, they would have missed it, that's for sure. Gab, Carly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kieran. That's my pleasure, Kieran. A uh, big thanks to Gab and Carly. Fantastic insight and opinions from those guys. Nice to have um, a, a bit more of a roundtable discussion, Nicola, than a, than a straight-up interview. Um, what, what, what do you think were, were the main points that, that we should pick out from, from that discussion? Yeah, it was good to have several different opinions um, about how football has been during these past couple of months. Uh, I think it was important you know, to see Carly's point of view on how the season's been since its resumption and what he would have thought as a player, what it's been like to play without the fans and having to regroup. And then obviously, as he pointed out, with some clubs obviously not um, going straight into their form, having lost a bit of momentum, with the whole getting a start date for the season but that may be only being two three weeks out from where they were not having the full you know six week pre-season that they would normally have um I thought that was important to, as to why some clubs maybe haven't performed yeah it was uh, really interesting to see the bottom clubs in the championship have such a impact on that league and I think that's all down to having having a clear plan in place and I think coronavirus is almost highlighted how important that is in football. Um, immediate success was definitely a phrase I picked out of that, that Carly said, you know, that was the, the, the way to almost be in, in, in the top two tiers. But now it, there's definitely been a shift. And I think the fact that coronavirus has had an enforced break and uh, it's almost helped those teams that have had a bit more of an identity and a bit more of a, a format in place. Fulham have done that with Scott Parker. They put him in, obviously, at caretaker. They've given him a chance. He's got promoted to the Premier League. And he was talking about, you know, the core foundations of the club, the culture around the club. And Carly and Gabs both agreed that, you know, clubs such as Sheffield United and Burnley have done that and managed to secure their place in the Premier League and continue to do that through the culture on and off the pitch and yeah it's just that sustainable nature of football I think it's changed we're no no longer flashing the pan in and out it's all about sustainability long-term future everyone has to have a five-year plan and hopefully we'll make football be better for it yeah definitely and you look at the amount of managers that are actually fans of their own teams you've got Dean Smith at Villa you've got Chris Wilder at Sheffield United. You've got Frank Lampard 
at Chelsea, you know, uh, Eddie Howe, you know, having those really successful, that decade at Bournemouth. It's really interesting that that has become quite an integral part of the success, that actually they understand the culture because they've, you know, followed that team for so long. And, you know, Chelsea have really shifted because they, they've gone from, you know, very quick appointments and tactical managers to actually, you know, finding someone like Frank who will be able to push this team on, I would have thought, for the next few years. Another club we didn't really touch on that I think is relevant to this, uh, just before we move on to Gavin Carley's favourite moments of the season, um, is, is David Moyes at, at West Ham and uh, how he was given a second chance to keep them up. Um, and he actually, in a 19-game comparison, uh, got one more point than Manuel Pellegrini did, who was seen as, you know, this Premier League winner who could play a real style of attacking football. Um, we're talking about cultures at clubs. Where do you think West Ham's is going to be? Um, you know, they've been able to, or Moyes has been able to get the best out of a, a striker in Mikel Antonio when they've got Seb Haller, their record signing, on the bench. Where, where do West Ham go from here? West Ham's obviously quite an interesting point, and I'm sure Ella would have a lot of views on what's happening there. They managed to get results in big games. They they beat Chelsea twice. Like that, you can't just do that. It makes no sense in the context of anything else. And yeah, Antonio, when he's on it, absolutely on it. And from this restart, was just an absolute beast with what he was doing in the box. Like possession-wise, his work rate on the pitch and then actually had the end product to go with it as well. And as soon as he scored the first goal in that match against Chelsea, I said, Antonio Hattrick incoming because you could just tell it was just one of those things. But yeah, obviously they've got a slight higher fire culture and they always have been and the fans can turn on them quite quickly if things aren't going well. There's always been the debacle over the stadium, which I don't think has helped matters. And obviously they've been playing with no fans there anyway um, throughout the restart and that will continue for however long it's said so. Um, so. I don't know if that is helping them in the way that they haven't got their fans on their back. As Carly was saying, sometimes that can help by if you, know, you haven't got your own fans, if things aren't going well, they start to turn on you and they haven't got that. They can you know, try and pick themselves up. But the culture... I don't know if there is a culture there. You think there is. And David Moyes said when he came in, he said, you know, he's got this winning culture and he wants to continue to do that. They've managed to stay up, but I just don't know if they've got the plan necessarily to stay up in the future. Like they keep balancing just above the relegation zone for the past few years. They haven't sorted it out and they keep going, we've sorted it out. But then they, it proves that they haven't. Big name signings, I don't necessarily think they work at that club. Maybe this needs to be more savvy with who they sign and, you know, get those players up from the championship and maybe see if they can turn someone into, you know, get them to work on, alongside Antonio and see if they can get a better partnership going. But yeah, there's such a quandary of West Ham and it always is. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you look at Jared Bowen's acquisition in January, and that I think actually, Nicola, if they keep David Moyes there, that might be a shift that their owners uh, decide to make. And I, I actually think that might work out uh, for the best if, if they get the, the championship's top talent. And it's going to be interesting to see, as we touched on early in that, in that roundtable discussion, what happens to, to Brentford's talent. Really looking forward to seeing Watkins and, and Ben Rama, especially if they can make it at. Uh, Premier League level. Nicola, uh, just, just before we go, uh, let's touch on, as we always do on Project Restart, our guests' uh, sort of key moments. And, you know, we asked them there at the end what their favourite moments of, of this season was. And, and Gab picking Wickham, um, having watched Argyle play Wickham over the years, we've often been in the same division as them recently. And they are just an awful, awful team if you're the opposition. Uh, because they are so niggly, physical, um, gamesmanship, uh, direct, uh, tough, gritty, uh, horrible team. <laughs> um, but, I mean, with, as Gab rightly pointed out, one of the lowest budgets in League One, to get up to the Championship for the first time in their history, 
the chair boys um, aren't just going to be known for their chair museum anymore. They, they might well be known for their football team. Indeed. Um, yeah, exactly the same from a Northampton fan perspective, to be honest. Always an absolutely terrible game. Not in the way that the style or the play or anything, but you just hate it. I'm ha- so happy for uh, Adebayo Akinfenwa, obviously Northampton town legend, um, that he managed to get up to the championship after you know, not having a club following his last playoff final victory. It'd be interesting to see how they do in the championship. I remember when Sheffield United were promoted up to the championship and people were saying, oh, that, that style of play won't work, long balls, etc. The Chris Wilder way won't work, but he managed to make them go all the way to the Premier League. So it can work in that league. Whether the fact that there won't be fans there to start off with will have any impact, because normally with the championship, so you get a lot of rival fans coming that helps your revenue, helps the spending on the pitch. Um, they won't have that necessarily. But yeah, it'll be the culture of the club, what Gareth Ainsworth's done and his kind of mentality towards it as well. It's very much has been, you know, building that club, very little finances. Even when they've managed to get in a few star players, it's still quite a small select group. Um, and I suppose, as Gab said, is the togetherness of that team that really helped them make that leap into the championship and Carly's sort of moment of the season if you can call it that is just the impact since lockdown and, and when we've restarted of the lack of atmosphere in the stadium and, and how that has impacted his enjoyment of watching the sport which I find quite incredible as a as a general sports fan because I've really enjoyed the golf and the cricket even though there's been no fans but do you think football is just inherently linked to a supporter culture and a, and a fan culture? And it's actually, you need that atmosphere to, to encourage better football. What, what, do, you, what do you make of, of what Carly said? It's definitely interesting to see it across the different sports. As you said, golf from you know, tournament to tournament, there's not necessarily a lot of difference uh, between it, apart from on the, the final afternoon, the final evening. Um, and as you said, cricket, I'm sure Stuart Broad would have loved to celebrate his 500th wicket in front of a crowd. But yeah, when you're watching it, it's quite interesting seeing more of the tactics of how, you know, the field is set, what the decisions on field are, and you can just hear a little bit more talking. Um, whereas, yeah, football, I suppose it thrives on its fans. It always has them. And that is part of the football culture. And whether that's fans getting on your back or fans supporting you, there will always be fans there. And to not have any there at all has been a change. And, you know, clubs have tried to get this sense of unity with the cardboard cutouts or pumping in some sound. From a viewpoint on TV, it's been... I've kind of got used to it. Um, It was definitely strange at the beginning. And then they started to add the crowd noise, which I didn't mind. And depending on the match, you'd flip between the two to see if you wanted to hear. But at Wembley, Definitely, you could tell the difference just because, as Carly said, the echoing. Like you can just hear everything so much more. Um, and yeah, I suppose it'll actually be interesting to see rugby. Premiership rugby starts again next week, uh, next weekend. And that's very similar to football in terms of fans. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Because in the same way that football can be at the heart of a city or a town, rugby is the same for some of those clubs. And not having that wall of sound there, um, especially rugby, for example, refereeing decisions. Um, sometimes it's been said that, you know, having a lot of crowd noise on certain referee decisions can influence the officials unknowingly. I'm mean, actually intrigued to see how rugby works out in comparison, because I feel like it's more of a direct comparison in sports like uh, golf, cricket, F1, etc. Absolutely. And I, I found it really interesting when I listened to the Plymouth Argo manager, Ryan Lowe's press conference. And he was actually asked by one of the journalists there, would he have preferred for the EFL to wait until fans were allowed back in for the season to resume? And he, he said he, he would have preferred that option um, to wait. And I, I, I think it just shows that the, the lower levels, especially that fans are so crucial to how a team performs and it just 
as Carly mentioned, feels a bit hollow without, without that. Nicola, thank you so much for joining me this episode. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you. And yeah, great to chat with everyone. Yeah, yeah it certainly was. And um, we've got plenty of sport to look forward to this month. And then in about five weeks' time, we're going to have football back again. So uh, no rest for us as sports journalists, thankfully, because we have been in hiatus for quite a few months. So it's nice to be back talking and writing about the, the thing we love doing the most. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you for listening, as always. Please don't forget to rate us five stars, tell your friends, uh, tell people that you're bored talking to as a way to get them away from the conversation. Uh, and, yeah, we, we really appreciate any, any sort of feedback. So thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye.